Once more, I welcome everyone to worship today. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and the Overflow Guys. Thank you so much for worshiping today, for being here with us. I know the church today is full and many of you are in the Overflow and God bless you there. Uh, Perry, Oklahoma, Pastor Brian Ahern, Merry Christmas you guys. We love you so much. Everybody open your Bibles. Open your Bibles. Uh, First, find the division between the Old Testament and the New Testament in your Bible. Uh, Again, if you haven't uh, been exposed to the Bible much, you may not be aware that there are sort of two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, you could say. And uh, find the division in your Bible. In in my Bible, there's one page in between. There's a white page, and it sort of divides old from new. Do you have a page like that or something like that, or maybe an empty space on a page? Just find whatever your Bible uses to show the gap between Old and New Testament. Because I want to talk about that gap for just a second. Again, in my Bible, it's, it's one single page. But recognize that, that in history, as things happened, there is about 400 years represented by this white page in my Bible. About 400 years from the last word of the Old Testament to the first word of the New Testament. 400 years. Years. I don't know if that sounds like a lot of years to you. That sounds like a lot of years to me. 400 years ago, we're talking like, what, the 1600s? It's, it's, it's really unbelievable. And unbelievable in a sense that there were 400 years, and sometimes scholars, Bible scholars, call them the silent years. The, the silent years. What exactly is that supposed to mean, the, the, the silent years? Are we supposed to assume that somehow for 400 years God was silent? But because there's nothing that that tells us between the Old Testament and New Testament what God was doing, are we supposed to assume that God wasn't doing anything? Let's talk about the silent years. First, while you're there, look at those last verses of the book of Malachi. That's a prophet. Very last words in the Old Testament. Just take a look at the last words. Uh, This is Malachi delivering a prophecy, a, a, a prediction, a word from God for the future. And the last words of the Old Testament says, look... I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. We're talking about the coming of the Lord, the coming of Jesus. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives, I will send you the prophet Elijah. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Last words of the Old Testament predict the coming of a great prophet who didn't arrive on the stage until 400 years later. Let's take a look at him. Luke chapter 3 is where we'll be today. Luke 3. I know that in some ways you're thinking, this, it's, it's the Sunday before Christmas, Brother Tim. You should be preaching about shepherds and lambs and, and, and camels. And No, no. Honestly, whenever Christians wanted to tell the story of Jesus is coming the first time, they always begin with this man. Always begin with John the baptizer. He prepares the way for Christ. Uh, Let's allow his message to prepare our hearts today for Christ. Luke chapter 3 verse 1. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Ituria and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest. And at this time, a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Then John went from place to place, place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching 
that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be, say the word, forgiven. Okay, don't miss that. Forgiven. Isaiah had spoken of John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled, mountains and hills made level, the curves will be straightened, and the rough places made smooth, and all people will see the salvation sent from God. When the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. That's an amazing sentence. Underline that. Prove by the way you live. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. The crowds ask, what should we do? John replied, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, Teacher, what should we do? He replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. What should we do? asked some soldiers. John replied, Don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. John answered their questions by saying, I I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. Good news, you get that? John also publicly criticized Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, and for many other wrongs he had done. So Herod put John in prison, adding this sin to his many others. That's later. That was a flash forward. No, back. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly beloved son, and you bring me great joy. Silent years. That's what they call them, silent years. Prophet Malachi ends his ministry, and, and centuries later, do you understand that? Centuries later, John the baptizer appears as God's prophet. 400 years in between. What's, what's going on? Again, I asked the question from the start are we to assume that God wasn't speaking? Since there was no prophet on a grand stage, are we supposed to assume from that that God had somehow taken a break, pushed pause? 
if God is silent, does that mean he wasn't doing anything? What was God doing for 400 years? This is a great question. You understand, all of the people who lived and died, all of the souls who lived and died in those 400 years, did they live and die with no word from God? Did they live and die with God doing nothing, with God doing nothing to show himself, to reveal himself, to save them? What was going on for 400 years? What are we supposed to believe? There was a, a man who went through a very, very, very painful divorce with his wife. They had two boys. A- after the divorce, this mother was, uh, was in some ways deranged, and she refused, refused to let her boys have any contact with their father, and it was heartbreaking. Re- refused. And so for years, I mean years, I mean until the boys grew up and were old enough to come looking for him, he wasn't allowed to call. He wasn't really allowed to send letters, cards, but he did. And, and this is what I want you to understand. He never missed a birthday. That father would send cards every single birthday. He would send cards with checks inside. And that mama would just turn right around and send them right back. Those boys never saw a card. They never saw a letter. They were never allowed to speak with him on the phone. They never heard their father's voice. They never got a card, never got a check, even though he sent them one after another. As years went by, one of the sons became old enough to go find his daddy, and that's what he did. Traveled, found his dad, and, and began to get to know his dad. And the first question he wanted to know is, Dad, why did I never hear from you? In all of these years, it was something like 15 years had gone by. Why no card? Why no phone call? Why no nothing? Father says, son, I want to show you something. He took him up into the attic, pulled this cardboard box out, opened the lid. And in that box was every card, every letter, every check that was never cashed, every bit of it. And he said, son, just look. There was not a day that went by that I wasn't thinking about you. My hunch is what we call silent years, that blank page in between the Old Testament, New Testament, my Bible. My hunch is there are a, a lot of things that God did, a lot of things that God said. They may not make the pages of Scripture. There may not have been a prophet on, on the world stage in that way, but make no mistake, God is never silent. And God is never absent. And God is never sitting on his hands somewhere far away in heaven doing nothing. You've got to understand this in your life right now. Because you may think that God is somehow taking a break from your life. You may be thinking that God has nothing to say to you. You may feel like God is giving you the silent treatment. But you've got to understand God is not silent. God is never silent. He's always speaking to hearts. He's always reaching out. He's always showing himself. He is always doing, always acting. He is always, from beginning to end, he's God. And he never, ever stops reaching out to us. Do you understand that? I don't know what happens for 400 years. I don't know necessarily what God was waiting for, but God did wait. And you can't avoid that. Galatians chapter 4 says that what God was waiting for was what Scripture calls the fullness of time. In other words, God does things his way and in his timing because he is God. And we don't always understand and we don't always understand his timetable. But nonetheless, what God does is perfect. It's never random. 
So in Luke chapter 3, when, when the story begins to crank back up and the, and the prophet steps back out on the stage, there is this several verses that give all of these details. It was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor, and Pontius Pilate was governor, and Herod Antipas was ruler, and his brother Philip was ruler, and, and, and another ruler, and Annas and Caiaphas were rulers, and, and there was a prophet named John. Do you understand why we're given all of that information? Why before John steps out, there's all of this detail given about historical information. Do you understand that the simple fact is there's nothing random. There's nothing random about this. Things are perfect. Everything is perfectly ready for the coming of the Messiah. Everything is in place. It's what the Bible calls the fullness of time. But what you and I have to understand is that there's just nothing random down here. It is not that history is just happening and God somehow sits on his hands. Do you understand? Even as history unfolds, even as rulers rise and rulers fall, even as people live and people die, God is always at work and God is always unfolding his plan. There's never been a moment when God's plan was pushed on pause or, 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 or had to go to plan B. Do you understand? God is sovereign. God knows what he's doing with the world. And even as everything unfolds, God's plan unfolds beneath, above, and beside everything else. Now, I'm not saying that everything happens as God's plan. I don't believe that. Whenever you see evil in the world, whenever you see people choosing to do evil, when you see a school shooting or a suicide bombing or any place where a person is harmed or starved or destroyed, you've got to understand that's not God's plan. God doesn't plan sin. He doesn't lead people to sin. God's not the author of evil. We have choices to make in this world. And let's be good and honest, we've nearly destroyed this place, and you can't blame that on God. Not everything that happens in this world is God's plan. Not all of it is God at work. But what you can't miss is in the midst of that, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the evil and the wickedness and the destruction, God is working to save the world. And he will not stop, and he will not grow silent, and he will not push pause. God is reaching out to the world even now. Just like he reached out in the man named John. This guy was wild, wild. There's just almost no way to describe him, no way to explain him. Now, you probably know people like that, probably people in your family like that, just no way to explain. But what I love about John is every time he's mentioned in Scripture, all you can say is he's the one that the Bible talked about. He's the one that the prophet Isaiah talked about. When Malachi said, I'm going to send a prophet like, like Elijah, you see, that's John that, that he's talking about. The only way to explain John somehow is to point back to Scripture and go, that, that, that's him, that, that's him. There's just no earthly explanation for this guy. He's crazy. He's wild. He's totally unexpected. A voice crying in the wilderness. He's a preacher from the sticks. He is. And he's wild and he's bearded. And the scripture says that he ate bugs and he ate honey and he dressed in just animal skins. And he stood out in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere. And he just preached like a man on fire. He preached. And the thing is, people came by the busloads out there to hear him. If there were buses, camel loads. They came out to hear him in giant crowds. 
Now, you've got to ask yourself, would you even cross the street to hear this guy? Would you cross the street to hear this guy preach? I mean, you could go to the synagogue, you could go to the temple any day of the week and see teachers and scribes talking about the scriptures. You could hear them teach, and you could hear their lessons, and you could see men who were dignified, and men who had education, and men who wore nice clothes, and men who sat like civilized people and talked about the things of God. John the baptizer is none of those things. He's wild, he's crazy, he's completely unexplainable, and there's nothing refined about him. He's like Duck Dynasty, you understand? In the Bible, just out there crazy, saying things that nobody else would say. When the crowd walks up, he doesn't say, hi, I'm John the Baptizer, welcome to worship today. If you're a guest, you'll find a a, a flap there in the order of worship. We love to have a, a record of your visit. Does he say anything like that? As they're getting off the bus, he's saying, you bunch of snakes, who invited you? Who told you to come? Seriously. That was his warm welcome. You brood of snakes, who warned you? Who invited you? Interesting. Would you even cross the street to hear this man preach? Because i got to tell you one more thing. He only had one sermon. One sermon. It only had two points. I mean, everybody knows a good sermon needs three points and probably a poem at the end. Two points. One sermon, two points. First point, repent. Does anybody want to hear that? Repent. That was his first point. And when John talked about repentance, he wasn't just talking about sort of admitting that you've made some mistakes. That wasn't going to be deep enough. That wasn't wasn't the real thing. He he talked about something more important than just admitting that mistakes have been made. It's more important than just saying you're sorry. John spoke about repentance in in the most amazing, blistering, transforming way. He he talked about repentance in terms of, of a genuine and radical change of life. None of this pretend business, none of this nice religious business, it it was radical, it it was shocking, nobody else was saying this. And for the life of me, I'm not sure why so many people flocked out to hear the the, the message, repent, repent, point one, point two, for the kingdom of heaven is near, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, it's the only sermon he had. And he didn't really have any, you know, funny stories to, to break up the monotony of it. He didn't do funny stories. He just preached. He, he, he blistered people with the truth. He, he preached the word of, of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is near. Do you understand what that means? That the kingdom of heaven is near. What's he talking about? It sounds like just religious language, and, and it is, and it's not. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Understand that the kingdom of God exists wherever God is the king, wherever God himself is sitting on the throne. And you've got to understand in the world in which we live, while God is sovereign and while God is the maker of heaven and earth, understand God is not the ruler of everything at the present moment. If you want to argue with me about that, I'll just simply suggest that he's not even the ruler of your life. 
He's not even sitting on the throne of your life. But this is what John the baptizer says. The kingdom of heaven is coming. God is coming in. The king is coming, and he's coming to take over. He's going to take his place on the throne of everything. And the first throne he's going to occupy is the throne of your life. So you better get ready. You have to get ready. See, that's why repent goes with the kingdom of heaven is near. God is coming. And when God gets here, he's going to be in control. He's going to call the shots. He's going to take over. So if you're going to be a part of his kingdom, you've got to just lay down and surrender to the king. You've got to repent. Make a straight highway in the wilderness, the scripture says. Make a straight highway. Prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. What does that even mean? You ever seen those giant airplanes land at the airport? Giant jets, just amazing machines that they can fly at all, but that they come off and, and on the ground, it's amazing. But what do they need? What's a giant jet plane need to, to land? A long, straight runway. A long, straight runway. And this is what John the baptizer is saying. The kingdom of heaven is about to land, people. It's about to land. And he needs a long, straight runway. And guess what? That runway is you. That runway is your life. So you've got to straighten out your life. You've got to fix all the potholes in your life. And that's called repentance, John says. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. You've got to straighten up you got to fix all the potholes in your life. The king is coming, and he is not going to occupy a life of filth and crud. You've got to be clean. You've got to be forgiven. Why did so many people go hear that? I mean, he calls them brood of vipers, snakes, and who invited you, and who told you to escape God's wrath? Why would people go hear that? Because it's true. Because it's true. I really believe that, that people want to be told the truth. And I think that when we're talking about God of, of, of all people, if we're talking about scripture of all things, that, that we owe each other the truth. And it's the truth. Your life's got potholes. Your life is not straight. God is not sitting on the throne of your life, and you need to do something about that. It's, it's just true. Don't you want to be told the truth in church of all places? Don't you want the truth? I preached two services on most Sunday mornings, 8.30 and 11. I shake approximately, what, 500 hands, 600 hands. I talk to all of you. Sermon is recorded for video, typically. So I had one of those Sunday mornings. I was in front of people all day long, shaking hands, preaching. Got home, got ready to change my clothes. My pants were unzipped. My pants were unzipped. I screamed. Like in one of those psycho movies. I came out of the kitchen and said, Casey, look. What's this mean? It means I preach in front of you. Wide open. Nobody told me. 
Y'all just shook my hand, smiled, extra wide. Probably somewhere on the internet, people are rewinding that tape right now. You understand? It would be awkward and embarrassing for you to tell me, but I would rather you tell me than let me go on. Kitten Powell was teaching Sunday school one day in Sunday school, and y'all know Kitten's bald. And a, a beautifully bald, Kitten, beautifully bald. Not totally bald, though. You're shaving some of that, right? And, and that's where the story comes in. Kitten was sweating. And as you know, bald men, when they sweat, just sheets come off, you know, in their eyes. There's nothing to stop sweat. So Kenton was sweating and, and, and just trying to teach and sweating his eyes. And so he turns around and he, he grabs a tissue off the table. And being Baptist, all the tissue we buy are cheap tissue. We were always saving money. So he reached and grabbed a, a cheap tissue off the table and started mopping his head with the cheap tissue. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, yeah. It just came apart on top of his head. And he just kept on mopping it for Jesus, you know, just mopping that head and just kept on teaching and just leaving pieces of, you know, toilet paper on top of his head, just leaving all that on there. Anybody tell him? No. No. Just teaches and, and puts his whole heart into it with all this, you know, tissue hanging on his head. Yeah. My, my goodness. Don't you want to be told the truth? Don't you want to be told the truth? You see, people went out to hear John because he told them the truth. They could go hear an uplifting sermon any day of the week at the synagogue. I mean, the, the teachers and the scribes, they droned on and on and on with lessons from Scripture. But, but John was different. When John preached, he held a mirror up to people's faces and they were able to see their true face. When John preached, he called them out, and he called them by their true name. And it was not always flattering, and it wasn't always completely encouraging and uplifting, but it was the truth. And it is the truth that sets people free. It's just the truth. And he said that the Lord is coming, that the King is coming, the kingdom of heaven is coming near. And you've got to straighten out the road of your life. You've got to... Change the road that you're walking on. All of the crookedness in you, it's got to be straightened out. All of the potholes in your life, you, you've got to fill them. God is coming. The, the Messiah is coming. One is coming. I, I baptize you with water, but the one who is coming, he's going to baptize you with fire. You've got to understand and, and be ready for that. I mean, what John is saying, I mean, I mean, look at his sermon. It's right there. It, he says that you've got to understand that there is an axe over your head. There is this axe hanging over your head. It is the axe of judgment, and it's going to fall. It's going to fall on you. You've got to look up. You've got to pay attention. Things are not right with you. It's not good for you. And you understand it's just the truest thing there is to say. And I really believe people want to hear the truth. They don't always like it. They don't always respond at first. But when John preached the truth, people listened. They listened. They would come up to him at the end and say, what does this mean? What do I need to do? Oh, my goodness. I just beg God for that every Sunday, that at the end of a sermon, people would want to respond, want to do something, that they would see the need to change the road they're walking on. What do we do? What's it look like? What's it look like? John said, well, it, it looks like sharing what you have with the poor. 
I mean, when you straighten out your life and, and, and God's in control and you're doing the things that God would have you do, it's going to look like helping people. It's, it, it, it's going to look like not cheating people. If you're a tax collector and if you're a soldier, it's going to look like not bullying people. I mean, John just said it plain. He didn't spin it. Didn't make it any, any prettier. He just told them the truth. It's going to look like keeping your promises to your spouse. It's going to look like not cheating. It's going to look like not lying. It's going to look like honoring your father and your mother. It's, it's going to look like keeping the Sabbath. It's, it's going to look like being honest. It's going to look like doing what's right. It's going to look like sharing clothes with those who are naked and food with those who are hungry and water with those who are thirsty. It's, it's going to look like righteousness. It's going to look like what God would do if God were in your skin, living your life. It's going to look like that, but it's not going to look a lot like what you're doing right now. And John was honest enough to say that. You've got to fix the potholes in your life. It's just true. But that truth in itself, I don't think, would, would keep them coming back. The amazing thing that John preached, the amazing truth that he preached. Verse 3, John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. The, the point was so that people could be forgiven. so that people could be forgiven. I've heard and seen a lot of hillbilly preachers in my life, and not just hillbilly preachers. There are certainly preachers who preach hellfire and brimstone, and don't get me wrong, there's truth in that. But sometimes when I've heard people tell people the, the, the fiery hellish truth, I always got the sense that the preacher halfway enjoyed that. That somehow telling people that there was an axe over their head, it brought him some kind of pleasure. And some of you have been in churches like that. They rather enjoyed calling people sinners and pointing out the potholes in their life. And there really are religious people who get some sort of sick, demented pleasure out of pointing out the potholes in other people's lives. But you need to understand, that's not who John was. He told people the absolute truth, and he didn't bend it around to save your feelings. He simply told the truth. But the purpose was so that people could be forgiven. Purpose was not to condemn people. Purpose was not to drive people away or to make himself seem larger than he was. No, it had nothing to do with him. His only message was, I, I want to decrease, he said. I want to just disappear into Christ. I'm going to disappear into the one who comes after me. But the point was that so people could be forgiven. That's why somehow this man was preaching good news. F forgiveness. Honestly, do you even know what that's like to, to be forgiven? If all you're going from is people in the world, then chances are you don't know because people don't forgive very well. Have you noticed? If they do forgive, they don't ever, ever forget. And just when you think it's forgiven, they'll bring it back up. I mean, people don't do this well. People keep records in their heads or sometimes even records on file of what you have done and they like to not let you forget so it's very very difficult sometimes to change because the moment you try to step up other people remind you of who you are and what you've been 
It's hard for us to relate to forgiveness because we don't offer forgiveness very well. We don't forgive and forget either, and nobody forgives us. And honestly, the world is a, a very graceless place. But when John steps out to preach, when John steps out to prepare the way for the coming of Christ, when he steps out to speak for God, I'm telling you, the word was forgiveness. It was all about forgiveness. And people would say, John, what does that look like? What is it like? And he would say, it's, it's like taking this miraculous bath. And, and that's why he would step into the Jordan River with people. It wasn't magic water. It was muddy, rank water. But he would take them down into the water to help them understand that, that, that forgiveness is like this miraculous bath where you're washed, washed, but somehow all of the crud and filth on the inside of you ends up going down the drain. Do you understand? Forgiveness is like that. It's this miraculous bath. We call it baptism. And John baptized people just to symbolize what it was like to turn from your sins and find real forgiveness. Find seriously a new life, a brand new road to walk on. Every curvy place made straight, all the potholes filled. It's like a miraculous bath where you go down one man and come out of the water another man. It's like that. And all of the shame, all of the guilt, all of the memories just somehow get washed downstream. It's, it's like that, John says. John says it's like going through a fire. A fire, a holy, blazing fire where you go in and everything about you that is, that is false, everything about you that, that is wicked, everything about you that is wrong, it just is burned, it evaporates somehow. And everything that's left is, is the righteousness of Christ. Everything that is left is true and good and pure. It's like that, John says. It's like this holy, blazing fire that once and for all burns off everything from your life that really has no place when God's on the throne. It's, it's like a fire. John says it's like when a farmer goes out and harvests the wheat and he cuts the stalk and brings them in, but then he goes into the barn with his winnowing fork. It's like a pitchfork, and he would take that grain and he would throw it up in the air over and over and over to winnow. This is what John is saying. This is how they did it in his day. Just continuing to take the grain and throw it in the air, throw it in the air over and over with the fork. And what would happen? When you throw it in the air, the chaff, the outer husk, the kernel, the dead part was light and it would fly away. And the seed, the good part, the living part would fall to the ground. It's the separation that the farmer would do, separating the wheat from the chaff. And forgiveness is like that, John says. It's like when God comes with his winnowing fork and he begins to, to winnow in your life and he begins to separate the dead parts of you from the part that he's bringing to life. He, he separates the useless and the worthless from the valuable and the eternal. He separates everything in you that doesn't belong from all of the things that he wants to nurture and see come to full fruit in, in your life. It's like that. It's it's forgiveness. It's a brand new start. It's an opportunity to be set free. John says this is, this is what has to happen in your life before the Lord can come. But because he's coming, you understand. He's coming. But when he comes, he comes to reign. He comes as king. 
you've got you've to make your life ready for him. Understand, there's no way that you can earn his presence or his grace in your life. There's nothing you can do. This isn't something that you can do on your own. If you could do it by yourself, you would have already done it. You can't do this. The changes that you need to make, the potholes that you need to fix, the way your life is crooked, you're not going to straighten this out on your own. That's why you have to turn away from your sin and you have to turn to God. You, You turn away from all of your old life and you turn to God. You come to him by way of repentance. You come to him with an honest, deep desire to be a different woman, to be a new man, and allowing him by his grace, by his power, by his goodness to wash you and make you clean, to burn away all the filth and death in you, to separate everything that is worthless from everything in you that he wants to bless for eternity. He was a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the coming of the Lord. Make a straight highway for his coming. Understand? The Lord is still coming, still reaching out to the world. He wants to come to your family. He wants to come to your school. He wants to go to the place where you work. He's coming into the world. And the highway he travels is your life. So you must make it straight. You must allow him to make your life straight. He'll do that. But you have to turn to him. Turn to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, some of us sit in church every Sunday like this and we count the minutes so the sermon is over and we get in our cars and we drive home and, and we feel like we've done something. But Lord, I pray before any of us walks out of these doors today that we will see and hear the truth. Help us, Lord, to stop finding fault with other people and help us to see the potholes in our own life. Help us to see the way, Lord, that we haven't exactly let you sit on the throne of our life, Lord, because we like to call the shots ourselves. We like to be the man in charge. We like to be the woman in control, Lord. We have no intention of surrendering control of our lives to you. Help us to see, Lord, that until you are in our lives as Lord, ruling on the throne of our hearts as King, Lord, that you have no part of us. You will not come into our lives that, that somehow you might serve us, Lord. You come into our lives to take over or not at all. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of religious people in this house who feel that their lives are right because they come to church, Lord, but yet have never surrendered control of their lives to you, never truly repented, never truly experienced the changed life that Christ brings. Oh, Christ, I pray that you would help us to see the truth today and turn to you. 
Lord, I pray that people don't leave this house today feeling condemned, feeling called out. Lord, I pray that they leave knowing that they've been forgiven. Let us leave this house today, Lord, with a clean heart, with a new mind, with a power and a holiness and a righteousness that could only come from you. Lord Jesus, we're asking you to come. Come into this house today. Come into our hearts today. May every heart be prepared as a throne. And may you rule in all of our lives as king. Come, O Lord Jesus. Reign in our hearts. We pray these things in your glorious, gracious, forgiving name.